The following podcast contains depictions of biblical events by five men who are not academically qualified to discuss biblical events. Whether you find yourself misinformed or touched by the Holy Spirit, hey man, that's on you. What comes to mind when you think of St. Peter? If humorous anecdotes have any weight, he is the Christ-appointed bouncer at the gates of heaven. Well, maybe, maybe not. But what we know for sure is that he was a fisherman, and that he was a disciple of Christ. We know he was a rebel and a fugitive, and more than once a prisoner of the Roman Empire. We know he was the first pope. We know he was a martyr. And consequently, we know he was sainted by the Catholic Church. But, perhaps, the most mysterious and unsettled question still remains. Was St. Peter a badass? Oh, I Obviously, if you're St. John Vianney and you did a lot of great things and you lived on potatoes, but you're not a badass. You're right. 70 pounds. Right. I mean, he was French and yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. There's nothing badass about it. No. Wait, wait, wait. Is that because he's French? Well, not not just because he's French. <laughs> There's more to it. <laughs> Love the guy. Love the guy. Go to his church. It's great. But um... Wait a minute. Are we going to do any other women's saints? Are we going to do like St. Barbara? I mean, she takes care of all the minors and the guys are going to ground and everything else. She's pretty badass. You know? Yeah. Takes care of them how? <laughs> I don't know. She, really? She, when they get buried, you know, they get to see their last vision of her before they die, I guess. I don't cool. know. You know. Mary's a saint and she's a badass. Yeah. Not in the specific way we are defining it. Joan of Arc is a good one. Joan of Arc is yeah. a badass. Yeah, definitely. She's 4.9. Yeah. Okay. But I guess we'll start off. I'll do the introductions. That's cool. Welcome to the first episode of Badass Saints. The show that explores the events in the life of a saint through the prism of his or her badassery. Each of us will opine and ultimately grade our subject on a scale of 1 to 5. 5 being the ultimate, 1 being, eh, not so much. Now before we begin, let's meet the players. First, our fearless narrator and my longtime goombody, and not just because he happens to be a professional wine aficionado, but because he's an overall solid human being. It is my pleasure to introduce... Michael Schmidt. Good evening, saints and sinners. Next, diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's, he's an advocate and social media influencer. He's also officially Filmstar. You can find him this October in the Grant Singer film Reptile on Netflix. It is the J.C. Capone. What's up, what's up, everybody? Also, author of the acclaimed To Be a King novels, radio host of the Gunner Detroit Show, CEO of Our Thing Apparel, subject of countless interviews and shows, including The Life with Larry Mazza on Mob TV, because, oh yeah, he's also an ex-Detroit street guy who did 13 years in prison, 17 months in solitary, for bank robbery and extortion, but he's all better now. Our own resident badass, Mr. Gunner Limbloom. What's up? That's a hell of an introduction. (laughs) 
It is my honor to present an archivist and historical lecturer extraordinaire. He's the author of Simon & Schuster's Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society, and an all-around genius in my opinion, the one and only William Hamilton Oldfield. Hey guys, glad to be here. Lastly, your humble host, just a normal guy, nothing to worry about. Catch me on the Partners in Crime and Extraordination podcasts, the Gunner Detroit radio show, and whatever else I do. William Crooks. Woo! Yeah, thank you. And now, the lights are down. The stage is set. Mr. Schmidt. Yeah. Let's get started. All right, let's do this. St. Peter is a Jewish citizen by birth, born in Bethsaida somewhere around the year zero. He was given the name Simon, which means reed-like or wavering. He is formerly known as Simon Bar-Jonah, which in Aramaic translates to son of Jonah. He is brother to Andrew, one of the original 12 apostles, and eventually will be a saint in his own right. It is deduced that Simon was born in a place called Bethsaida, a town on Lake Gennesaret, a position of which cannot be established with certainty although it is usually sought at the northern end of the lake. Simon is a fisherman by trade, along with his brother Andrew and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Andrew, for his part, has interest beyond mere fishing. He's been intrigued by the teachings of a radical religious zealot known as John the Baptist. The Synoptic Gospels also depict Peter as being married or widowed, as he does have in his life, if not on his back, a mother-in-law. No wonder he needed Jesus. <laughs> that by itself. <laughs> She's a blabbermouth. Like, dude, come on. <laughs> I got the greatest mother-in-law in the world. She's the best. Yeah, I got a good one, too. You do have a good one. And just so we know, the Synoptic Gospels, they're talking about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament, which represent similar narratives of the life and death of Christ. All we know about the radical John, at least for now, is that he is a highly eccentric figure of his time, living a life of extreme poverty in the wilderness and surviving on a Spartan diet consisting mainly of locusts. Although his preaching and teaching is building considerable following, he insists that he is only a messenger, making way for one immeasurably greater than himself. Don't locusts come out once every seven years? Seventeen, isn't it? I thought it was seven. What did we have last year? Cicadas. Oh, the cicadas. Which, same thing. No, here's the fact behind that. So every seven years, on average, they have this massive. But they do come out every year, just not massive amounts of them. So you still have them, just not crazy. Put them in the ice box. <laughs> yeah. And the locusts they're talking about back then are actually grasshoppers, not cicadas. They come out every year. You yeah. dip them in honey, they're quite good, I've heard. I don't know that personally, but... Yeah, deep fry them in salt and butter. Deep fry them, anything tastes good. <laughs> uh, fishing in this time is hard work, much as commercial fishing remains to this day. While Galilee's fishermen sometimes use spears and hooks, most serious fishing is done with nets. The nets are either cast from the natural shallows in the area or a boat, or they are dragged behind a boat. Fishing is no small part of the local economy in Galilee during that time. The villages of Capernaum and Bethsaida, that name actually means House of Fish, are located on the Sea of Galilee, as is Magdala, which is a fish processing town. 
The Sea of Galilee, which is only about 13 miles long and 7 miles wide, is rich with fish, even today. Various sources claim that, in the time of Simon Peter, there are 18 to 37 different varieties of fish caught there. Today, three main types of fish are harvested from its waters, including the famous St. Peter's fish, a type of tilapia known to tourists and pilgrims. So at this point, Gunner, he's starting to have a lot in common with you. You're a big fisherman. Yeah. Also a guy who probably doesn't know God the way I would in the future, but I'm a believer in God. So I see that similarity too. It's kind of a tough guy, kind of a blue collar dude. Obviously I was more of a street guy and a criminal, but I could see, yeah, he's going to grow closer to God. Yeah. And he's fishing in a way that most people don't realize. He's not dropping a line in the water. They're going out in rugged boats. They do it all day in the sun. Then the water's freezing. It's hard work. I was looking into what his boat might look like. So in 1985, a first century fishing boat was discovered in the mud along the Sea of Galilee. That's where I left. Yeah, like many... (laughs) Son of a bitch. Like many bodies of water around the world, these water levels have been consistently dropping. In the U.S. reservoir Lake Mead, a lot of bodies, one in particular shot and stuffed in a barrel, have been discovered recently. So similarly, the drop in water levels there led to the discovery of a boat. Two brothers, who were themselves fishermen and amateur archaeologists, discovered the boat, now officially called the Ancient Galilee Boat. Some people call it the Jesus Boat. The boat was obviously old as hell. It was so waterlogged and deteriorated, it took 11 years to safely get it out of the mud. 11 years? Yeah, and they did that by encasing it in a polyurethane foam, okay? So since then, it's been brilliantly restored and preserved. It's on display at the Yigal Alan Museum near Magdala, not far from where it was from. So, regardless of whether the boat actually belonged to one of Jesus' crew, it does give us some insight into what the boat looked like right? It was old. It was repaired with a lot of different kinds of wood. It'd been stripped of anything useful, such as weights or oars or a mast. So it's thought that it was intentionally sunk. Well, they probably sunk it for the insurance money, right? <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll be here all night. And then the boat is 27 feet long by seven and a half feet wide and about four feet deep. Not that big. No, but large enough to hold 15 people. Pulling nets. Yeah, pulling nets. Get into it just briefly, the fact that there's no motor. I mean, not yeah. even sails to go along, by and large. Yeah, you're using oars. Oars. They might have used some sails, but oars were the main, the main... Yeah, they were using an Egyptian rig, so the boom is up at an angle, so it goes right over your head when it goes by, when you come about. So that way you don't knock your guys off the boat. Yeah, I would think. Can you imagine that sail swinging across and you got 15 guys in the boat? Duck! <laughs> is that why they got the term sleeping with the fishes? <laughs> Yeah, you think guys with Parkinson's would be good on the oil? No. <laughs> they shake the shit out of them. They'd be going every which direction. Go straight, Capone, go straight. Keep going to the left. Stop going to the left. But those guys are professionals. They know what they're doing. For It's like guys who work on the oil rigs, you know what I'm saying? All that danger all around them, they get hurt. But when you're a professional fisherman and you're out there doing that all day, every day, you can almost sense where that boom is at all times based on the wind and the person working it. So they had accidents, though. Correct. So that's that's the way they're fishing. Just so you know. Okay, Mikey. Sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. So beyond his social roles and occupation, what do we know about the personality of Simon? At this point in the story, we can reasonably ascertain that he is a kind of small town guy. Presumably not wise in the ways of the larger world, so to speak, 
but true to his faith, as was culturally enforced among the Jewish communities of his time. He also displays a tendency towards aggression, as will be evidenced in the years to follow. 30 AD. With the backstory laid out, Simon's story really begins with his acquaintance and later friendship with an up-and-coming messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. A popular reading in the New Testament lays their meeting out like this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 20. John's depiction of the genesis of their adventure seems to many to be a more plausible explanation. Jesus and Peter first met after John the Baptist introduced Jesus to two of his disciples as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right, and this is like right after the baptism of Jesus if people don't know the story. John the Baptist, of course, has been baptizing people and people think he might be the Messiah. And he's like, no, no, there's a guy coming. I'm not worthy to loosen the sandals. And when Jesus comes, it's his cousin. But when he baptizes him, this spirit mm -hmm. comes from the sky and rests upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And he knows that this is the Messiah. Now, Andrew, he's a disciple of John. So he would have seen this. He would have been there. And they've been waiting for the Messiah to arrive for like 500 years. So it's an exciting thing for him. And of course, he's the brother of Simon. So it's very likely he would have ran right to Simon. The Messiah's arrived. Yeah, he's here. We found it. Correct. JC has come. John the Baptist being the uh, warm-up act, if you will. Imagine that being the warm-up act in Jesus. That'd be pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Hold on, Jesus is coming up next. It's kind of like being the Clash, you know, being the warm-up band on the Who tour, you know? Right? And how do you follow that? Get your head cut off, that's how. Ah! <laughs> 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 it's true. <laughs> He's like, top this! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, though. And he did. He did top and it. How? He was killed and came back in three yeah. days. I'm coming back in three days, but John, you ain't going to see him no more. Yeah, he ain't coming back. <laughs> All right. Okay, Mikey. Sorry. One of the, no, don't apologize. One of those gawking <laughs> disciples was reportedly Andrew, who immediately rushes to inform his brother Simon that he has just seen the Messiah. Jesus, of course, was known as a carpenter's son who grew up in Nazareth, a town just about a day's walk up into the steep hills that separated Galilee from the plains to the west. Regardless of the path of introductions, what is certain is that the three men do cross paths, and within a day or two, Jesus calls Simon and his brother to be fishers of men. One of the first accounts of Simon's time spent with Jesus involves the men visiting Simon's household, where his mother-in-law is lying ill with a fever. According to accounts, Jesus goes to her, touches her head, and the fever is instantly relieved. Now, if you're Simon at the time, is it's, I'll just ask, good thing, bad thing? I mean, Yeah, it's heads or tails there. You don't really boy, know. Boy, I know, but if she's an Italian mother-in-law, she's faking it. She's just trying to guilt everybody here. You know? Hey, what do you got against the Italians? Be careful there, pal. 
Who is this handsome boy you bring home? <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> my good friend Jesus. Has he eaten yet today? He doesn't look like it. And she's got to peel all the plastic off the couches, too. <laughs> <I do not>. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right, let's get going. Sorry, Mike. Man, go like all right. <laughs> Presumably out of excuses, the now perfectly healthy mother-in-law has to get up and fix them a meal. <laughs> this would likely be the first evidence to Simon that the man in his presence is not just another charlatan with a good shtick. That's the cool thing, though, is because they really are waiting for the Messiah. You know, Peter probably owned his own fishing thing. He wasn't a low-level guy. He was making money. He was hustling. So it wouldn't be for nothing that he would up and leave. Now, the mother-in-law might give him a little incentive to leave, no. <laughs> but, you know, he, he had good reason. So he's seeing things immediately. First, he got the testimony of Andrew. Now he sees this. So you can see he's starting to go like, oh, maybe there's more to life than fishing. Yeah. Or this guy. Maybe there's more to this guy. Right. And you got to remember, it probably sucks to be a Jew. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and rally them up and help them defeat the Romans. They think that this is going to be like a military takeover and they're going to destroy the Roman Empire and free him. They totally misunderstand the nature of what the Messiah is. This impression is further solidified when not long after, Simon and crew are out fishing unsuccessfully. As they are coming in and cleaning their nets, Jesus approaches, prays, and teaches as he is inclined to do. After, he advises Simon to take the boat a bit further offshore and cast the nets again. Simon, an experienced fisherman, finds this advice to be a bit naive. After all, he and his cohorts have been at it all night. Respecting his new friend and teacher, however, he concedes and launches the vessel one last time. According to scripture, the nets became so full of fish that they are on the verge of tearing, and that additional help from nearby boats is needed just to keep the boat from sinking. At this point, Simon falls to his knees before Jesus, and instead of thanking or worshipping him, he tells him to get lost. More accurately, he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Far from acquiescing to Simon's warning, Jesus officially adds to Simon's name, rendering him now Simon Peter, proclaiming, Upon this rock I shall build my church. Or prophetic words to that effect. Right, and he hears Simon's name and he's like, that means a reed that bends in the wind. And Jesus knows his plan for, for Simon. So he says, no, 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 you're not going to be a reed that bends in the wind. You're going to be a rock. So I'm going to change your name and your name's going to be, your name's going to be Adrian which is also a guy's name. <laughs> nah, I mean, your name's gonna be Peter. Actually, Cephas from the Aramaic, Kepha, Rockstone. It, it goes on and on. Basically, he calls him the rock. He goes, no, you're not gonna be a, a reed that bends in the wind, even though it kinda is. He says, you're gonna be my rock. So at this point, do we think Peter's a badass yet? Hold on. He's got a sick mother-in-law. He's got an Italian mother-in-law that he lets stay at the house with, he's a badass. Better. Puts up with her shit all day better. You, you know, I, I tell you, Bill, I was just thinking about something. You know, when all those fish are brought into the boat, it's an unbelievable catch. And Simon, no matter who he really is, what really catches me is that he looks right at Jesus and says, Look, leave me because I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy of you. So any tough guy or badass or anybody out there, anybody who can admit to somebody their humbleness and realize that they aren't worthy of something, 
that takes a lot of character and, and you got to be a badass to be able to admit your faults and he immediately does that and that, I think that shows right away he is a badass yeah but he does seem like the kind of guy that might mix it up in a bar you know what I mean if he's if he's out and somebody gets a little lippy he probably has big hands big arms he'll probably put the hurt on you Bill what makes you think that though what makes you say that he, that you think that kind of guy he is, could be? You know, I lived on the beach for a long time, and I was around the fishing community, and, and these guys were not soft. They like to, to drink a little bit, and they, they like to mix it up. Well, they're certainly tough, but, you know, you just don't know disposition. I, I basically it on every real commercial fisherman I've ever known. Think Quint from Jaws, but a much younger version of Quint. Wow, that's a good analogy. That's an odd reference, but, I mean... Typically, yeah, commercial fishermen, they're cut from a certain cloth, and yeah, they're going to be a little bit on the tougher side. A little bit rougher. So, Gunner, you don't have that take of him? I don't have enough information to make that discernment or judgment on somebody. He could have been a man of great faith and very calm and apathetic and just a good guy who wouldn't fight or start any trouble. I see nothing in the Bible that, that indicates he was a brawler or drinking, drunken. That's you know. true. That uh, is true. Yeah, drunken's not a good word, but I think perhaps he's a rash, impulsive person, and I think we'll see that coming up. Wait, do you know the ending of this story, Billy? I do. I know how this ends. You got it. All right. So you got the inside track. <laughs> Guys, don't spoil the ending for me, please. That, what's that show that me and Maria, the pet, uh, the, the Chosen? chosen? Yeah, the chosen. Absolutely, I love that. So we do too. We actually supported it and donated it and stuff. So we're like one of the first people who donated. It's pretty cool. But anyways, I've watched it and I love Peter and I love all of them really. But Peter's definitely one of those guys who stand out. And the way they depict him is yes, he's a little bit of a live wire. He's a little bit of a tough guy. A little bit of a, a little bit troubled. So I don't see that in the scriptures. But it's all a matter of interpretation. In the meantime, what he does next is going to be badass. True that. Yeah. I kind of I have that same impression from specifically from watching The Chosen. And you figure, Andrew, I figured, was the more meek, the more humble, the more devout of the two brothers. And kind of, and not just through scripture, but in the show, too, obviously, one is tied to the other. Correct. Andrew's more tied into it, but Simon's taking care of business. Right. But it also speaks to my theory that he's kind of a rough and tumble guy. Yeah, that's true. Well, like Bill just said, that's the one indicator that he may have been a kind of a major sinner and stuff. Because here you are in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah, and immediately you're going, I'm so dirty. I'm not worthy of being in this man's presence. So if he was an angel, he probably wouldn't have been feeling that way. But uh... right. And Jesus already knew that. When he went to his house, he saw that he was splicing cable from the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, really, bro? Is that a black box? <laughs> I got HBO. Stealing my f***ing cable. I paid for that fight. hundred dollars to see Mike Tyson fight Mayweather. Am I nuts? Yeah, he was. He, he'd run a hose over to his neighbor's well with stealing water. You know, yeah. <laughs> well played. I like you don't do that around Galilee. You know, that's pretty mean. Hey, uh, <laughs> Simon, my water bill. <laughs> you don't do that in the desert, man. That's that's cruel. 31 AD is where we're going next. 31 AD. Following the informal renaming ceremony, Jesus leads his posse to their destiny. He surrounds himself with a company of sinners, explaining to his critics that it is the sick who need a physician, not the well. His behavior contrasts with the social norms of the Jewish Pharisees, who tend to seek certain levels of respect and social status. It is at this point that things start to get very real for Simon Peter, when a man described as a certain ruler approaches his rabbi and begs for his attention. He explains that his daughter has recently passed away, 
but beseeches Jesus to come to his house and lay a hand upon her. Nevertheless, it is said that in root another woman, diseased with an issue of blood for twelve years, comes behind him and touches the hem of his garment and is at once healed of her affliction. Arriving at the house, Simon Peter and his fellow disciples find the girl dead, as expected. Jesus, surrounded by the mourning, wailing relatives of the fallen maiden, advises them to make room for him, for he explains, the girl is not dead, but merely asleep. This elicits a mixture of confusion and anger amongst the mourners, but their confusion is short-lived as he takes her by the hand, and she miraculously arises. Despite having healed numerous people by this point, the resurrection of the maiden spreads word of the Nazarene like wildfire. The disciples are fully aware that not all the leaders in the surrounding areas appreciate this spiritual sideshow. Their master, who calls himself the Son of Man, is becoming dangerous. Word of mouth just was amazing how fast it spread about Jesus, about every one of his actions. You know, it just grew and grew and grew. I mean, people traveled by burrow. They, they walked. Almost nobody had a horse or a wheeled carriage. That was extremely rare. It's amazing how fast it traveled. We're now saying the same thing today, even though we have social media and everything. But if Jesus came here today and started doing miracles, the entire planet would know it within 24 hours because it'd be viral all over everywhere. People would and, being, and even if you didn't have social media, you would definitely run and tell your neighbors the Messiah is here. I witnessed a miracle. He brought a girl back from dead. I was healed the sick. That We'd be running around telling people, everyone. Exactly. You can't oversell that. If you saw a miracle tonight, tomorrow, whenever, if you physically witnessed a miracle, you would be telling anyone and everyone that you do. Add to that the fact that say you had video footage of it, It'd be even bigger than that. You know, I've witnessed a miracle in my life. I've witnessed a miracle. I don't talk about it a lot because people won't believe it. But it's about a butterfly. I think, Bill, you know the story of the butterfly with Maria and the butterfly. Right. But um, they just know it's, in, it's humanly and mathematically impossible for what happened to have happened the way it happened. So clearly it was God kind of breaking his own rule of I'm not going to communicate with the humans directly. But he did. But like through nature, he did it. And so I think if we saw a miracle today, unless you had video proof evidence, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say it was AI. Yeah. yeah. But 2,000 years ago, if you're, wait, you're Jewish and you're waiting for the Messiah and your whole life has been about the wait for the Messiah based on the Bible, which you're, you know everybody's familiar with, everybody knows verse for verse for most part. And then all of a sudden, you know, John the Baptist comes and says, this man's going to be greater than he baptized. And, and the series of events happened then you realize this is the messiah you would be running around telling people screaming it like, yo the messiah's here just like, everybody and everybody be running and coming to meet him just like they did they all then they, before you know it he's got ten thousand people standing around watching and they got lines of, right and sick people are flocking to him exactly. everybody wants in on the yep. yeah everyone wants to heal well you get jesus on your show you better break it better talk about me because i need some healing i need some healing brother i like to shake the man's hand well, that's what they did. Sorry, JC, I got a really bruised toe that really needs looked at. But if there's any time, we're going to cure your Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> bruised toe, then Parkinson's. You got a bruised ego. You know what? I have a tooth that's just been... Uh. JC, okay, now you're four. They're going to get to you, I promise. Okay, moving on.
All right, let's get back to Peter. Think of the authorities around there. The, they all think he's about to kick some Roman ass. Exactly. The Romans, I guarantee you, and all their fake priests and fake you know governors and all, all their puppets that they had in place, you know, yeah, including the yeah. Pharisees and whatnot, you know, a lot of those guys were basically puppets of the Romans, and they were probably unbelievably concerned. I'm sure that happened very quickly. Our power structure. Oh, yeah, it's completely, it's, you know, where they said, we've got to do something. This guy, we cannot let this, you know, get out of hand. It's true. We're on the clock here. Now engaged in a full-on ministry, Simon Peter and his gang accompany Jesus as he cures the blind, drives out demons, and builds a following that makes a Grateful Dead show look like a tea party. It is around this time that news reaches the crew of the beheading of John the Baptist. What can only be a time of great sorrow, they try to retreat, perhaps for a moment of isolation to grieve. The crowds are having none of it, however, and continue to press onward. Where they go, crowds follow. Follow blindly, without reservation, it seems, as they soon find themselves stranded in a deserted place. Great in number and short on food, the disciples encourage their rabbi to dismiss the multitudes, that they may disperse and find nourishment. Jesus, instead, performs the miracle of the five loaves and two fish. His deeds and notoriety will now be impossible to contain. Following the all-you-can-eat sermon, Simon Peter and company are instructed to leave their rabbi behind and travel by boat. Jesus finally dismisses the crowds and reportedly goes to a mountain in solitude to pray. Far out at sea, Simon Peter and crew find themselves caught in a storm. The relatively small vessel is tested by the torrent of waves crashing into its sides. But the waves and the wind aren't the most frightening thing they are witnessing. A ghostly figure is appearing from the outer edges of the storm, heading toward the terrified group. It is clearly the figure of a man who seems to be supernaturally walking across the wind-churned water. Their fear soon turns to astonishment, as the specter calls out and identifies himself as their friend and master. Simon Peter is the first to regain his courage and immediately asks Jesus if he can also traverse across the waves. Beckoned to do so, he rushes out of the boat and is also treading atop the sea. He takes a mere moment to absorb what is happening, this impossible feat, when the fury of the storm around him shakes his faith and he begins to plummet into the depths, crying out for his rabbi to save him. Save him he does reaching out to his student and pulling him from his murky demise, all the while admonishing him for his lack of faith. Takes balls to be the first one. Yeah, that's that's good interjection point, if ever there was. that During a storm, that takes guts. Yeah, good point, in a storm. But that seems to be Peter's character. He gets worked up quick. Like he's like, they're like, that's Jesus. I'm going too. He's going to head out there and stuff. I have a dog that shakes during a rainstorm. I have a god who walks on water. So, but he also questioned his faith right away, too. And that's what happened next. Right, and this is just like our faith. There's always that moment where you get it, and you you think you got it, and your life's going to change. But then all of a sudden, tomorrow, you're back to your silly old self. You know. As they return to the boat in safety, it is said that the storm and waves become still. It is shortly after this adventure that Jesus asks Simon Peter who, exactly, the people are saying he is. Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
when Simon Peter is asked who he believes Jesus is, he identifies him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is pleased with the response and declares that upon this rock he will build his church. This is the foreshadowing of Simon Peter becoming the first pope of the Catholic Church. It's actually a kind of a significant point when you figure that Peter gives up the perfect answer to it. It's like, you are the living Christ. This is a moment when Peter is one of the few people that really kind of get it. It's like, no, this is the son of God. This is the one that we've been told was going to come. Yeah, this is history. This is what we've been waiting for for thousands of years. So He's there with him firsthand. He's seen him raise the dead. He has seen him cure the sick. He's seen the miracles that were predicted in the Old Testament because they said a guy's coming and he's going to cure the sick and he's going to raise the dead and he's going to do all these things. Like basically his best friend is doing everything that he's studied for his whole life. Yeah. I remember, quick, quick, quick aside, just in part of this is taken from The Chosen when you figure, I remember Jesus saying to him, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Well, put that into the context of like, what does that actually mean? It's like, throw down everything that you've known, your livelihood, your family, your house, et cetera, et cetera, and you're going to follow me. And I am basically going to make you fishers of men, and I am going to build the church on you. And through watching The Chosen, it at least gives you some perspective, like his wife in the show, Peter's wife, is like, yeah, do it. It makes perfect sense. This is, this is the Messiah for crying out loud. Yeah, it's exciting. Yes. You know, back in the day, I considered myself a fisher of women. Yeah. The key point is you, you considered yourself. Me too. I was more of a catcher of women, but semantics. I was a really bad one. I mean, I... Mike was pulling catfish. <laughs> That's empty. Damn it. Honestly, I think that, that Simon's wife was probably saying, wait a second, wait a second. I mean, you've got this old beat-up boat. You know, you're working yourself to death. You know, your hands look terrible. I hate when you touch me with them. It feels like sandpaper. You smell like fish. Yeah, you smell like fish. He's This guy is the Messiah. He's going to give you a bang-up job. You're going to get a suit and tie. You're going to be sitting behind a desk. You won't have to worry about getting beat up or, you know, dirty anymore. This is a great gig. Everything but the paycheck. But she doesn't know that up front. Have you seen Rome? They got all the gold in the world. Yeah. Yeah, you ever go downstairs in the vault? <laughs> they definitely ain't broke. Exactly. And Peter's taking home some diamond rings for his wife. There you go, baby. We're moving up like the Jefferson. Yeah, absolutely. Wheezy. Yeah, that precedent hadn't been set yet. Working for the Messiah doesn't pay shit. <laughs> we got to move on, but I was thinking, Gunner, this is basically what it's like to be in the mob. Hey, you think it's going to be exciting. It doesn't pay shit. You're probably going to die. They're going to kill you uh, at some point. Yeah, but they take care of your family, you know? Yeah, right. That's a lie, too. I got like four letters over 13 years in prison. Yeah, they take care of you. Uh, JC's not around. You need a boyfriend? Don't worry, I got her back. It's all right. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. It is further instructed that the disciples shall tell no one what has been revealed to them. And then he drops the truth bomb that they are clearly not ready to hear. That their Lord is to be handed over, executed, and risen from the dead. Peter is the first to charge forth, assuring Jesus that no one is going to get it if he has anything to say about it. He is immediately rebuked as a Satan and reminded that God's ways are not man's ways. He's given Peter a lot to think about, and if there's even the slightest bit of doubt, even after all he's seen, 
that doubt is eradicated by an event known as the Transfiguration. Okay, so the Transfiguration is a fascinating account to say the least, because it is a miracle not necessarily performed by Jesus, but one that happens to Jesus. So it goes like this. Jesus, accompanied by James, John, and of course Peter, we probably wouldn't be adding this, ascend to a mountain to pray. Religious accounts love mountains. At some point, Peter goes to Jesus and finds him somehow altered or transformed. He's described as radiating light, like a celestial being of sorts. Now, if that's not shocking enough, he is now in the company of Old Testament heroes Moses and Elijah, long-dead Jewish legends. In Old Testament prophecies, it is said that Elijah would return from his ascension to hold out hope for the redemption of sinners before the final judgment. Peter also describes the voice of God calling Jesus son, much like his baptism performed by his now beheaded cousin. The takeaway here is that God, Moses, and Elijah have orchestrated this spiritual powwow as a last-ditch pep talk to prepare Jesus as much as possible for the unthinkable test that is coming his way. Thirty-three A.D. Perhaps sensing that the time of Jesus' arrest is nearing, a brave, although foolhardy, Peter assures his friend and mentor that he will not have to suffer his tests alone. Jesus, in return, assures Peter that he will deny him three times before the cock crows. His time drawing ever closer, Jesus leads his apostles to a place called Gethsemane, Although divine in nature, he is showing visible angst and asks Peter and company to wait up with him while he prays. When he comes back from his prayer session, he finds his apostles, who just swore to stand by him until the end, are all sleeping. He implores them to wait up with him while he returns to his prayers. He returns one more time to find them sleeping yet again. Yeah, they could have used a little caffeine, maybe. Little, it's it's know. interesting, too, because this is the one time that Jesus seems like all too human. And they say he prayed so hard that he sweat blood. They found out later that you can actually suffer such stress that that is actually physically possible. But they didn't know it at the time that this was written. That shows you how deeply he felt this. And at one point, he biblically says, please, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But your will be done, not mine. And, of course, it's like, not, not. It's got to happen. I think put it in Christ's perspective, just from a humanist point of view, that here you have somebody who knows what's coming. They don't necessarily know what's coming. Jesus obviously knows what's coming. And all he asks them is just to stand vigil, to wait by. And it's like, guys, I, I asked you one thing of you. That's it. That's all I flipping asked. Can you please stay awake? Not just once, but twice. Well, they're sleeping, but they don't understand what's about to happen. It's kind of like people saying, I got your back, don't worry, when times are good, and then when, when shit goes bad, everybody disappears like cockroaches in the light. Well, don't forget, Simon Peter is still a human. He's, he's a man. He's going to fall backwards, and Jesus is going to occasionally have to bring him forward again, you know? Think about it, it's just it's another metaphor for Adam and Eve, really, that I asked one thing out of you guys, and you couldn't good do point. it. And some days I have them. <laughs> hey, guys, as an afterthought, maybe we should piece together a paragraph that goes over the Last Supper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a valid point, come to think of it. Yeah. He instituted the priesthood, confession. Whoops. I kind of wondered why we skipped Sorry, that. man, there's no time. We had to cut that scene. <laughs> <laughs> the set crew couldn't find a big enough table. Yeah, we couldn't find Michelangelo and Da Vinci. 
That is important to have that. Meanwhile, Jesus never wanted to pass up a good meal. <laughs> and it's written that by the last accusation, Peter is even cursing and spitting. Yeah. More bread? The salad, it just keeps coming. But that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Bill, you just had to do that. Where are we? Go ahead, um, go ahead. That's right. He returns one more time to find them sleeping yet again. Unfortunately, Jesus isn't the only one to find them, as the betrayer Judas of Iscariot is making his final entrance, and he's brought what is described as a great multitude with swords and staves. The apostles, who have long been afraid that this day was coming, are taken aback as their brother and fellow disciple identifies Jesus as the man to be arrested. They move to arrest him, but Peter isn't willing to give up his rabbi so easily. Although weary from the long night and undoubtedly taken by surprise, he quickly assumes his role as the alpha male protector, draws his sword, and thrusts one of the high priest's servants named Malchus. The servant manages to evade a death blow, but nevertheless feels, probably doesn't hear, the hot flowing pouring from the side of his temple. Peter has chopped off his ear. Right, and honestly, I gotta say, like, if you take the five of us, who is most like Peter? It's got to be Gunner and JC. I could just see JC and Gunner puffing their chests out like that in that situation and saying, hey, come on, right now. Take care of everybody right now. Let's, let's get it done right now. I'm sure I would have. I'm sure that's exactly how I would have been. But I also think I'm smart enough to see that the, the writing on the wall where this is the Messiah, then everything I've ever known and or see with my own eyes, I need to question it now. I have, This is God here. And he follows. He does follow. But again, he, his faith wavers just like ours would in that situation. So, it is what it is. I think you both have that in you. Me, Mike, and Hammy, we're survivors. <laughs> we do a great job watching, and we always wear threaded shoes so we can and Brothers, run. we are going to tell your story in poems. It's going to make people cry. I can't wait to write about it. Way over here. Exactly. We'll call it the New Testament. Okay, we're just going to tell the story. Yeah. Damn it, I forgot my pen. we got to go back to Bethsaida. Hey, I just want to comment on something that he said. In my neighborhood, we don't run away. We strategically <laughs> walk away so that we can fight again. It's a big difference. <laughs> running away? No, we don't do that. But don't don't say running away. It sounds it doesn't sound like that wasn't running. That was just speed walking. We had an appointment here. <laughs> That's funny. Sure, yeah, I would definitely protect Jesus. I certainly would, and I to the death, you know. But it's still hard to. Put yourself in that position and definitively say i would do this when you got a legion of romans coming at you or or whatever all these pharisees all after you and they're killing and crucifying and still even though you know that's god you've seen the miracles i like to believe my faith wouldn't waver then i've never been put in that position i've been put in a room with fbi agents that said you can go home to your girlfriend right now if you tell and I said, no, just lock me up, send me to prison. So I had enough moxie because I just figured I'd kill myself. So if it came down to myself and Jesus, I most certainly would protect them. And like, hey, I'm protecting the son of man, the son of God. If I die, who cares, man? I'm, you know, I mean, it's, this is God. I'm going to heaven. This is what we've been waiting for. But not anyway, everybody's different. Right. But I can say I consider Gunner to be one of my best friends. Nobody's more loyal to his friends than you. If anybody's going to stand up and do the right thing, I believe it would be you, my friend. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I take great pride in that. I know pride comes before the fall, but I'll tell you something. If somebody's a real friend of me, and I'll know they are, I'll have your back till the end. I'll, I'll die for you, no problem. You know, it's not even a question. I'll, I'll take the bullet. Good illustration of character. Jesus commands him to stand down. Resigned to his fate, he surrenders to his enemies. Jesus is arrested and hauled back into town. The apostles, who have been beside their Lord and Savior, who have borne witness to his teachings and miracles, basically haul ass out of there before they can suffer a similar fate. Peter is no exception. However, he does follow the captors, albeit at a safe distance. As Jesus is being questioned by the hypocrites, a crowd has gathered outside. Smelling blood in the water, they begin to look for the followers of the blasphemer named Jesus. Even as his Lord is being falsely accused, spat upon, and beaten, Peter denies ever knowing Jesus each time. And it's written that by the last accusation, Peter is even cursing and spitting, vehemently denying Jesus when he hears the cock crow. He finds a secluded place and weeps bitterly at his own betrayal and cowardice. This is where he's a complete pussy. You know, he, he knew who he was. He saw the miracles. He saw the people rise from the dead. He himself acknowledged that he was the Messiah. And look, like I said, I think you're at your most dangerous point when you think that you're a good Christian, when you think you're strong, when you think you're bulletproof. That's when you're at your weakest, because when you think you're strong, you don't know what's coming. And you're asking to be tested. Story of my life. Story of my life. You know, before I went to prison, I thought I was strong. I get to prison, I realized how weak I was. At that point, I was like, this is when I need God most. You know what I'm saying? That's when he needed him most. Jesus needed Peter there the most. But it is what it is. This is all part of the plan laid out. It was all designed for the Bible. It was all just, this is all, like you said, three times for the rooster crows. It's all to illustrate the flaw of humanity. And still, he still forgave them. He still embraced them after the resurrection. You know, it is, it is what it is. Imagine also, you're Christ and you know that Peter's got to go through all of this. And he has to. I mean, for Peter to be St. Peter. And he can't say anything. He can't tell it. He has to let it happen. Yeah, he can't. It's like, you know what? You are going to be the ultimate coward. In fact, as they're killing me, you're going to be freaking off somewhere hiding. Not even willing or able to show your face because you're too fearful. Not a chance of a five. Right on, right on. True that, true that. So he's a f***ing right. Right, but you gotta realize he's in that courtyard and they're in this little pit where they've got Jesus. They lowered him down through a hole into this prison. I've seen it on video and stuff. And they're beating him, they're mocking him, they're, they're killing him, you know what I mean? They're just beating the crap out of him. His flesh is off his bones. Watch the passion. Yeah, watch the passion. He's like, yeah, not so much, you know, no thanks. From this moment, Peter goes into hiding. There is no evidence that he remained to witness the trial and crucifixion. All that is known is that three days after the execution takes place, Peter and his brothers receive word from the disciple Mary Magdalene that the body of Jesus is not in the tomb where it had been laid. Unbelieving, Peter runs to the tomb, sees the burial clothes of his Jesus, and eventually leaves the site perplexed. According to the book of Luke, Peter then traveled to a village called Emmaus in the company of another man named Cleopas. It is during this journey that Peter claims to see the risen Christ for the first time. 
following the first appearance, Peter returns immediately to Jerusalem. He informs his fellow apostles that he has seen Jesus quite alive and recounts the events that have transpired. It is in this moment that Jesus appears before the group. They are far from relieved to see their risen Lord. Conversely, they are terror-stricken and believe themselves to be in the presence of a ghost. Jesus calms them by assuring him that he is very real. He shows them the wounds of his crucifixion and then eats a meal of broiled fish before them. It is said that he then led them to Bethany, lifted up his hands, blessed them, and ascended to the heavens before their eyes. Right, and it's, it's kind of interesting, though, that a lot of times when Jesus reappears, they don't know him right away. And at that previous moment, they said that he breaks bread, and when he breaks the bread with them, their eyes were opened, and they realized, like, holy crap, it's Jesus. Oh, it is him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that he doesn't reveal himself right away and then mm -hmm. they'll have like some conversation it's almost like he toys with them you know and then he, yep. he, he reveals himself i think they all did like a shot of grappa you know that you know that stuff burns like crazy you know and they went it's jesus <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow wait a minute <laughs> is this a smoking lounge can i spark a cig <laughs> yeah. all right i'm diving in here <laughs> Jesus appears to Peter a third time during an extremely unsuccessful fishing venture in the Sea of Tiberias. Calling out to their vessel from a fair distance, he advises the hungry fishermen to cast their net from the other side of their boat. Miraculously, they discover their once empty net to be teeming with fish. Peter, upon realizing that the man on the shore must be his lord and savior, casts himself into the sea and swims to the shore. Jesus allows Peter to withdraw his denials and profess his devotion. This is kind of the famous scene, guys. You gotta help me out with this, but he gets there and he betrayed Jesus three times. And Jesus gives him three chances to redeem himself, right? In the mercy of Christ. Basically, the gospel reads as follows. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning the other guys. And Peter kind of dodges the question. He's like, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The significance of this is not that he gave him just the three chances to redeem himself for the betrayal, but he was saying that all along, Jesus was the shepherd, right? He was the shepherd leading the flock. And what he has done with this moment is not only redeem Peter of his betrayal, but said like, okay, from now on, you're the shepherd. You're going to feed the sheep. You're going to tend the sheep. You're the shepherd. So it's a huge passing of responsibility from Jesus to Peter. Call it the original come to Jesus moment. That's one of the <laughs> biggest moments in the entire Bible for me, by the way, mm -hmm. growing up and reading, mm -hmm. realizing it's it's like a father to a son. There's, a, again, another metaphor there. When a father or a family has to look at the prodigal son and say, it's time for you to step up. It's time for you to become the man that you have to be you know, for all of us and for everyone around you, you know, and I think it's scary for Peter 
but I think he realizes you know, at that point, basically, I've got to grow up. I've got to be the man. I've got to do this now because someone has to pick this up and continue. You know, it's a really huge... Right, and on paper, you would think Andrew was the heir apparent, you know? He was the devout one. He was the pious one. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right, and that's that's why it's so important. It's an epiphany. Is it while being a second son or the one who's not really the one who's always been the most important previous in life, and all of a sudden you find out that it doesn't matter which order you are at birth. If you have to pick it up, you have to pick it up. You have no choice. And I think that Peter realizes that he has no choice. Hey, Bill, what kind of man drinks alone? You've been drinking out of that golden chalice all night. Yeah. Don't even offer me a drink. Of course. What kind of friend are you? <laughs> all right. There's also a somewhat odd exchange where Jesus says to Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And this is where Jesus is telling him, but not telling him, you're going to be killed. Yep. Yeah, he didn't say it in so many mm -hmm. words, but this is where he's telling him, like, uh, trust me, one day you're going to have your day. You know, and it's uh, you're going to go where you don't want to go. Yeah, foreshadowing, to put it mildly. The good news is the gates of heaven are open. Bad news is it's a spiky no. entry. <laughs> Jesus, if you could take this cup from me. He goes, yeah, I tried the cup thing. It's a no-go. <laughs> <laughs> don't you remember? Jesus directed the 11 disciples to travel to Galilee, where it is said that he appeared to many people. He directs his apostles to go forth, fearless, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. At some point after this meeting, Jesus departs from them for the last time, assuring them, I am always with you, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Peter is now the de facto leader of the Christian faith. He addresses the fact that they are effectively a man down, as Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, had committed suicide. <laughs> Wait a second, if you hang yourself, are you using a bullet or a Yeah, he hung himself. <laughs> right, I hate to be that guy. I'm getting up against it as far as time goes. I gotta do this in like a half hour or less, which I think we can do. Uh, okay, Judas. Have a nice oh. day. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Exactly. <laughs> they chose a man named Matthias. Peter is now a changed man, filled with the Holy Spirit. He confidently addresses a large crowd in Jerusalem, recounting their miraculous events that he has personally experienced and assuring them that faith in God will save them all. He backs up his tough talk with action publicly healing a man that has been crippled since birth, so that he may walk and testify. The target is now on Peter's back, and anyone traveling with him. The local Sadducees take him, along with John, into custody, promptly throwing them in a prison overnight. Before finally releasing them, they sternly warn them against preaching in the name of Jesus the Christ. So who do we listen to? Uh, the instructions of God or you jerk off? Yeah. <laughs> who are you guys again? Yeah. So Mike, did I just skip over Pentecost? Maybe a little bit. You kind of got it without saying it, if you know what I mean. We should probably revisit that as well. That, all right. It's, yeah. Right. And we should say they were all sitting in a room 
and they're worried now. They're scared because they had banked all their money on Jesus. And now Jesus just got horse whipped and killed. So they're looking scared and they're looking embarrassed and they look like fools, basically. And they're all sitting around. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and tons of fire appear on their shoulders. And it's the Holy Spirit. And this is when they are transformed. And this is when they are talking in tongues. They can speak in everybody's language. They're going out there preaching. And people that speak five different languages, everybody understands them. And they are transformed into different people. And now they are no longer cowards. Peter's no longer a coward. He is emboldened and he is blazing and, and just expelling the word of God. Throw in the fact that there were 40 days in the process after the resurrection. Yeah. What happens next is one of the more unsettling accounts in the story of St. Peter. After admonishing the husband and wife, who could be described as lukewarm followers, the couple presumably fall dead before Peter. This is a weird story in the Bible. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, at this point, they're all becoming communists, right? Everybody's going to give up their property and everybody's going to give their stuff. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a little bit of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to us, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and dragged him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Hey, uh, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She's like, uh, yeah, that's the price. Peter goes, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she falls down and dies. <laughs> then the young men come in, carried her out. Great fear seized the whole church who heard about these events. Interesting, eh? It, it sounds kind of scary. It sounds almost like extortion. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound very holy. I mean, these people, yeah, they might be might have been fairly wealthy or comfortable or whatever, but... They're being greedy. Yeah, I mean, they should at least be allowed to keep a little bit of the money. They're giving the rest of it to the church. It sounds a little bit... I don't know. There's some things in the Bible that amaze me. Some of the little parts of stories that kind of contradict... <laughs> Was that a mistake? Was... Well, I, yeah, but I mean, it's... They killing someone because they only gave me 90% of their wealth? Was, should I not have done that? It doesn't sound right. <laughs> I'll even throw in the fact that maybe it was a situation where, like, you freaking lied to me. You said you were going to get 100 bucks and you got 120 bucks, you jerk. I don't know. Maybe it was the principle of it. But Peter's also flawed, man. He's a little bit greedy, and we'll see. He has other character flaws even after the Holy Spirit comes upon him. I I'll just be candid. During the Council of Nicaea or whatever, why weren't things like that edited out? Because they kind of go against the teachings. Hold on, guys. I'm gonna we're gonna walk away now fast. <laughs> Don't worry. Not because we're scared, but because we have an appointment. All right, that's a really good idea. Okay, now you're scaring me, Bill. 
Well, he is not Jesus. He is not the Son of God. He's the stand-in man to continue it you know, for Jesus. So I guess he does make mistakes. And maybe that's why they left those sort of things in the Bible and in the writings is because they wanted to demonstrate that, yes, he was the new leader of the church, but he also was still a sinner and he was still flawed. Peter and John travel on to testify to the cities of the things they have witnessed. It is said that they baptized men in the name of the Holy Spirit, and that the people did feel the Holy Spirit come upon them. Peter moved on to Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he rose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. That's cool. I flashed on Willy Wonka when that lazy-ass grandpa yes. came off for like 10 years. Then he got a golden ticket. Yep. And it's like, hey, get up. That's a miracle. I forget his name, but I know. Yeah, I don't know. In significant that. ways, this is different. I'm, I'm going to go with that. Aeneas, I think he was legitimately paralyzed. And that's the thing. Back in the day, like when he says, get up and rise, it wasn't like some stranger came in, paralyzed that day, and started walking. They're right. like, we knew this kid since he was a, a baby. <laughs> He's always been paralyzed, and they see yep. him get up yep. and walk and stuff. It, it's it's impactful. The Pharisees want to discredit this, you know what I mean? So when this stuff happens, the Pharisees drag them in, and they get witnesses and testimonies and things like that. They make damn sure that this is what happened, and still, they don't care. All right. As he travels on, he finds his way to Joppa. It is said somewhere around this time that he had a vision. A vision that will make his mission all the more perilous. From this moment, Peter gathered that his mission was not only meant for the Jews, or the assumed chosen people, but for every man. When he encounters a man named Cornelius, he imparts this wisdom for the first time. Many staples of the Jewish culture would be undone. This obviously doesn't make things between he and the Pharisees any easier or Peter any safer. At this time, Herod decided that enough is enough. As fate would have it, he found himself confronting this newfound movement head-on. He sought to have the troublemakers that were causing unrest in his kingdom arrested. The first to be apprehended was James, the brother of John. In what was probably a speedy trial, even by biblical standards, James was beheaded. <laughs> Herod undoubtedly took pause to see what the Jewish reaction would be to his heavy-handed tactic. The Jews approved. Emboldened by this affirmation, he next sought out Peter and had him thrown into confinement. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison but he thought he was seeing a vision. He had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. 
When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. By the way, there's another account where uh, Peter actually had met the guards and transformed them. And he had somehow extracted water from a rock to baptize him with water and stuff. So that had happened as well. I've heard this story more than one way, like Bill just said, where he converts the guards and the angel does not appear to him. And I've also heard it where the angel appears to him and makes him invisible, basically, to be able to pass by the guards without the guards even knowing it. And they're wide awake. Right, that's, I think, the version I've heard. Yeah, so I just wonder if that comes from, possibly from translations. Who knows, you know? Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. At this point in his faith, one would assume that Peter has his spiritual behavior pretty much in hand. But as he is indeed a man and not a god, he is not immune to stumbling. Although he has revealed the good news that the Gentiles are under the umbrella of God's love, indistinguishable from the Jews, when he finds himself in the company of a Jewish crowd, it is said that he behaves differently. Reminiscent of his denial of Christ, he treats the Gentiles differently under social and political pressure from his chosen people. This hypocrisy is publicly called out by the more recently initiated apostle, Paul. The hypocrisy called out by Paul? Apparently, St. Peter started acquiescing to the Jews, and they're saying, like, the Gentiles this and the Gentiles that, and it's and he was kind of like, yeah, the Gentiles, you know. And, he only did that in their company, though. But when he was outside their company, he was yeah. more accepting and in the public sphere, like if it was a public podium. But when he was at a you know dinner or whatever with only Jews, he was known to do that more than once, is to acquiesce, like you said, a little bit to them. Right, even though he had had a vision where there was unkosher meat laid out before him and stuff, and he's like, Lord, I only eat kosher meat or whatever. And he's like, nah, y- y- it's cool, whatever. And just paraphrasing. Exactly. He had the vision that all men and women and beings on the planet, regardless of their faith, are to be embraced, to come into, into Christ. You know, and I know it was a vision, but I just wondered if he's, again, he's he's still a man and the pressure gets to you sometimes, you know. He becomes a politician, basically. A, a little bit of that, yeah, where he's probably a little bit of it is fear, though, because when you're in with a group of people that are all of the same mindset and you have expressed something that was more broad than what they accept, you feel a little bit nervous, you know, you know where that comes from. You've been in that in that room before. Yeah. Add to that the fact that he had basically witnessed several of his fellow disciples being killed, too, for it. So another layer of pressure, if you will. Right. <laughs> and I think that's why he did it. So that's why I don't know if I can fault him for it or if he was, you know, my gosh, I'm in fear of my life. You know, I've seen what's happened. I'm going to have to do a little bit of this to make all this work. I want to express the faith and to grow the faith, so do I have to compromise a little bit? So I'm wondering sometimes if he felt that slight compromise was okay, but what did it do? For 2,000 years, it's created a schism between Christians and Jews. I mean, they accept each other, but isn't it amazing that that one little thing that he thought he was compromising, what I'm trying to say is a compromise 
can sometimes be the cause of a much, much larger problem in the future. Right, and no one ever thinks that their weaknesses are going to be immortalized 2,000 years later in Scripture. Well, it's, it's not just the immortalizing, it's the result of a compromise. You know, like when you're negotiating, sometimes you do not compromise. You know, because Jesus told him not to compromise. Jesus said it's everybody's to be accepted, and Peter compromised, and it caused a 2,000-year schism. It became a biblical bitch slap. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you have a way with words. Line of the night, ladies and gentlemen. That is, Bill has a way with words. <laughs> Doesn't he, though? Doesn't he? <laughs> the biblical bitch slap. <laughs> he and JC, you know... I'll tell you, oh, JC's got some one-liners too, I'll tell you that. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Well, it's time to pay the piper. Somewhere around 64 AD, it is believed that he was captured by the Roman Emperor Nero, possibly blame the Jews for his misfortune of seeing his homeland set ablaze. Nero was a bit of a nutcase anyway, and may have set Rome on fire himself, directly or indirectly. By the way, that is absolutely, I think, there's no doubt about that, what was going on with, with all the research that has been done, yeah. you know, ever since, and, and the really great archaeology that's been done. Yep. It's pretty obvious that Nero wanted to redevelop whole sections of Rome that had gotten really kind of dirty and nasty and falling apart and whatnot. And he thought, well, this is a great excuse for me to do this. And then, of course, to just like a typical politician, you know, the stereotype, what does he do? He finds a scapegoat for it, so they can't blame it on him. And that has been basically proven at, since then. Everything was happening exactly as he planned. Fix this urban sprawl. I know what to do. Yeah, exactly. Presumably, he endured a trial and was sentenced to execution by crucifixion. It is said that Peter, still shamed and pained by his betrayal of Jesus, declared himself unworthy to be put to death in the same manner of his Lord. He elected to be crucified upside down, and it seems the Romans were more than amicable to that modification. All right, so I'm going to talk about crucifixion briefly. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already fixed into the ground, okay? Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam, and then nailed firmly to it through his wrists. The cross, yeah, if, you, if they nailed you to the hands, like a lot of depictions see, you'd fall right off the cross, right? The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about nine to 12 feet approximately three meters of your European, from the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the upright shaft gave some support to the body. Now, if this were employed, it would have been below the shoulders. Who knows? Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. They probably realized halfway through that Peter was screwing everything up. Okay, because Peter insisted on being crucified upside down. And this is critical. He was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of the man and the friend he betrayed. So death ultimately occurs through a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the blood strained under your own weight. It could be hastened by shattering the leg. 
with an iron club, which prevents you from supporting your body's weight and it makes inhalation more difficult, accelerating both asphyxiation and shock. And again, this would have done St. Peter no good if you break his legs. His legs weren't supporting him anyway. So probably halfway through the crucifixion, the Romans were like, hey, you got us. And you actually die faster when you're upside down. So that does that take a half point away from his badassness because he figured out how to kill himself faster and it was going to be less uh, suffering or, you know... Or- um, I don't know, but he gains a half point for being a wise guy. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. So, so we equal it out. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting because I never thought much about it until Joshua the intern when he was a little kid. We were talking about how some people don't think that Jesus rose, that it was all just he was a prophet, blah, blah, blah. And Joshua the intern pointed out at a young age, like seven or eight, he was like, look, he denied him three times. He was a complete coward. Something happened that when it was finally time to nail him to a cross, he wanted to do it arguably worse than it happened to Jesus. He's like, you don't change like that unless you saw something. What he saw was Jesus come back from the dead. That changed him. Otherwise, nothing he did made sense. That's deep to pick up on. That's a big mea culpa, too, for Peter. Yeah, huge. Huge. I'll tell you, you have to go to St. Peter and Chain's church in Italy. And, you know, each church has a relic of some kind. And uh, when you go to St. Peter and Chains, of course, they have a glass chest that has the chains that supposedly fell off his wrists. We weren't there. I don't know if they fell off his wrists or the guards removed them. There's always been these two stories about how he gets out of prison. But that was really an exceptional place for me. I mean, yes, the Vatican, yes, going down into the crypts and, and seeing the Vatican Museum. And even I've been in the Vatican archives as well and got permission to be in there and there's a lot of very inspirational things, but I think that the chains in that glass case in St. Peter and Chains Church, really, they kind of did it for me. Now, I understand how relics really did something to the congregation when they were sitting there, because it did something to me. In the modern era, when you see an artifact that's there, you see that they're not like modern chain. You can see how painful they would be to have the shackles on your wrists, that kind of thing. And so St. Peter went through so much. So on the other hand, getting himself crucified upside down, like your young intern, Josh said, he may have been doing that because he felt that he had to be punished more severely uh, because he wasn't worthy. There you go. Peter took consolation and satisfaction in the knowledge that his death would bring glory to God, summoning the last of his strength, faith, and courage a final time. He died a martyr's death while holding hope for the coming of heaven and a reuniting with his teacher, friend, Lord, and Savior. This concludes the story of St. Peter. Real quick, I got a jet, not to be rude, but I love you guys and this has been a blast. I hate to head out. You got to go. I have to do the same thing. I got to be up at four. By the way, my lighting went out on me anyways because my I got a long story. is a battery runs the light and it went out, so that's why I vanished. I didn't just <laughs> bail on you. You got to say your goodbye and you got to rate. You got to rate him one to five. I would rate St. Peter, I'd say a four. I'd say a four. I don't fault him so much for pussying out at that one moment. He's scared. He's human. He's flawed. I am a tough guy, but there were times where it was a fight that I knew I couldn't win or I was scared to get killed. So I ran. So I just, I can understand the human flaw of turning tail. So I'm not going to take it all away from him. I think you'd have gave him a three if he didn't fish. (laughs) 
Yeah, that thing. definitely helped. Being a badass fisherman is definitely helped. <laughs> I'm going to give him a four, just like Gunner. Can we get into the minutia? I'll give him 4.25. I feel like, and again, part of it is this is just kind of a recency bias. Him getting crucified head first, if you will, that says something. I mean, there's a certain amount of humility in that. There's a relatability in... What am I trying to say here? I want to say this as concisely as possible, that Peter has a lot of faults along the way, but he was a badass for the following reasons. One, he took what Christ charged him with, or i.e. starting up the church, he took it on his shoulders. He was willing to die for his faith. He was willing to give up his life once he realized who Jesus Christ was. It, it took a lot of sacrifice probably on his part, at least in the practical material ways that we oftentimes think of, but he lived up to the faith too. He didn't, after his cowardice, God bless the guy, but after his cowardice, uh, when Christ was being crucified, he still stood up and led the faith. And not just for a year or two, but for the next roughly 30 years or so. So I feel like he was flawed in many respects, but he was also a human being, just as we are. But he also ultimately lived up to the promises he made to Christ, too. So that's why. I think he sets a good example. Not a perfect example, but a very good example of living out your faith. There. That's me. Okay, I'm adding him up. JC, how do you weigh in? <laughs> uh, listen, I'm a little torn right now. Because if he's such good friends with Jesus, and if I give him a poor rating... You know, <laughs> that might be a strike against me. I already got enough strike. You know what I'm saying? Oh, don't, don't be know. a coward, man. You got to rate him one All to five. Right, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If you don't, <laughs> I'm going to rate you a two. I'm just saying, Will, <laughs> if I go out on the line on this one and I get in trouble for it, I'm coming for you. I'm just telling you that. Purely right. on badass, man. It's not about, it's All not right, about so anything else. In my books, he betrayed Jesus. A rat's a rat, and you can't glorify a rat. I give him a two and a half. Oh. <laughs> harsh. Very harsh. Listen, if you see Jesus walk on water, resurrect people from the dead, and you don't vouch for the guy, you're not a kind of guy in my book. I don't care what you do. He did see him walk on water. That's fair. I'm still a little bit upset with St. Peter about what I said earlier in, in our discussions about the schism he created and so i'm going to say 3.5 on the badass scale i'm, I'm going to take a little bit off of where mike was giving him a 4.25 because i think that even after 31 years of spreading the church of christ around the known world at the time uh i give him that absolutely and I know he was faulted, but one has to understand the results of their actions. He was the head of the church at that point. And so he had to understand when he compromised and did not almost forcibly or with his charisma bring the followers of Christ and the Jews together under one umbrella a little more strongly. I think that that has always bothered me. Now, let's get rid of the negativity here. And on the positive side, he was an amazingly dedicated man, and the world will never, ever, ever forget him for his commitment to expressing the love and the faith that he had in our Lord, and I have to give him a 3.5 for that, absolutely. Yeah, you know, JC, I thought I was going to be the hard-ass man. I'm going to give him a three for all the reasons that uh, JC lined out. JC went out and smoked a cigarette. <laughs> okay, we're going to average this out by five, and we're going to give St. Peter a 3.45 on the badass scale. Not too shabby. Can I be a recurring guest? 
Of course. All right. I want to be like on, you know, the, uh, what was that show? X is an old game. Tic Tac Toe. Tic Tac Toe? How the hell did you come up with that? That is a very obscure but great reference. Don't you remember those old TV shows? With <laughs> yeah, the guy I do. I remember Tic Tac Toe. I had to think about that one. And Betty, Betty White was on there. You know, Bill, it'd be like the Hollywood Squares. You, know, you, you get to be one of those guys that always shows up on the Hollywood Squares. Yeah, Hollywood Squares. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> be one of them washed-up old celebrities. JC wants to be Paul Lynn. Oh, I love it, That's Paul true. Lynn. Right? What was the guy from? Uh, Steve Harvey does his show now, but the original <laughs> guy that used to kiss all the ladies. Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson was on all those shows. <laughs> he he kiss all the and girls it, and stuff. Richard Dawson would be canceled nowadays. <laughs> he was Hogan's heroes all the way. He made Hogan's I'd be heroes. Better off as, uh, what was that guy on The Price Is Right? Oh, Bob Barker. <laughs> the Price Is Right, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we appreciate you sticking with us it's been a lot of fun guys i can't thank you enough for being on this show it's been an honor a real honor love to all of you you as well thank you gentlemen good night guys it was a pleasure thanks for having me you guys well done you gave me a lot of food for thought in terms of saint peter but uh still gotta love the guy so that's where i stand with him have a great night i'm out have a great night Good night, guys, and hey, don't forget, we're all called to be saints. Let's do it. Amen.